Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this the land mourns and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. Let no man bring a charge. Let no man accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. You stumble day and night and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I also ignore your children. The more the priests increase, the more they sinned against me. They exchange their glory for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not increase because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, which take away the understanding of my people. They consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hill under oak, poplar and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant, where your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they turn to commit adultery, because the men themselves cavort with consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Though you commit adultery, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Do not go up to Gilgal. Do not go up to Beth-Avon. Do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand that, shall we? Lord, we freely confess that uh, without your help, uh, your ancient word, the Bible, is uh, opaque to us and we can't understand it. Especially, Lord, we sense uh, sometimes these prophetic words that speak into a situation we know very little about. Please, Lord, help us to understand what you want to tell us this morning to take it to heart and let it change us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now in 1972, Richard Neville was a celebrity. Does anyone know who he was? 
Thank you very much. Ian's well uh, educated. He was the editor of the magazine Oz. Um, he was actually finally acquitted from the uh, longest obscenity trial in British history in 1972. Oz was a, a shocking, satirical, anti-establishment magazine which uh, uh, during the 60s was a, a pioneer force in, in breaking through the restrictive barriers of censorship that there were at that time. And the Oz trial was a major step forward in the process which uh, after the, uh, the Second World War saw the censorship laws greatly reduced in this country. It was a decade earlier, actually, in 1960, that D.H. Lawrence's erotic novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, was cleared of obscenity. But Oz took things further. Oz made no pretense of being great literature. Main defense was that if people wanted to read the material that they produced, then what right had the state to stop them? A generation later, though, in 1996, Richard Neville has had a change of heart. He wrote uh, a book entitled Out of My Mind, in which he surveyed the world that we now live in. And he was very aware in that book of our modern concern for the environment. But he actually suggests that the movement that he pioneered may have been responsible actually both for damaging the environment but also more profoundly for damaging our souls. Commenting on uh, Peter Greenaway's film, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, Neville says, sure, let's clean up the garbage in Antarctica, but what are the garbage in our living rooms? He goes on to lament the fact that uh, his generation have been actually reluctant to acknowledge the damage that modern media may have uh, been doing. He says, those whose views were crystallized in the censorship wars of the 60s decry the possibility that the prolonged and excessive depiction of hideous events in the media could have a detrimental social effect. Neither do they connect this cultural pathology with our ailing environment. He says the two, in his mind, are connected. Both the modern uh, uh, popular concern for the environment and also what he sees as a deeper uh, river of sewage in our minds. It's time to tackle, he says, a system which fouls another resource, the river of our dreams, our desires, and our collective destiny. In the 60s and 70s, Richard ne Neville's generation run, won almost every battle in the name of free speech and of free love. At the turn of the 21st century, some of those campaigners, at least, are stopping and surveying the landscape of what they have achieved and actually are seeing a morass of pollution and desert, both in the physical world and also in our souls. Very interesting. 
because Richard Neville is almost exactly echoing the words of a prophet, this prophet Hosea, who wrote his work nearly 3,000 years ago. Do you see that? Verse 2 of chapter 4, there is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea are dying. Hosea made that connection. He said this corruption that actually he saw growing in his world had overflowed into the natural world that they lived in. Let's take a leaf out of Richard Neville's book then and uh, take a look, first of all, at the problems that Hosea sees. See, uh, like today, Hosea lived in a period of considerable prosperity. Uh, Hosea was focused mainly on the northern half of the divided nation of Israel. And in the northern part of Israel, Jeroboam II was ruling and all seemed reasonably well on the surface of things, at least at the beginning of Hosea's ministry. It was certainly true that the past purity of Israelite worship was now a thing of a distant history, but everyone comforted themselves that Israel was living in a different world now. And after all, they were doing okay, weren't they? This was a world in which people had had come to terms with that their, their, their more fundamental, primeval history. They had rediscovered, actually, the ancient gods that they had once turfed out of the land, gods that were associated with, uh, with uh, sexuality and abundant fertility. They were called the Baals in Hosea's day. They had reinstated this ancient set of uh, tra religious traditions alongside the somewhat outdated worship of Israel's uh, God Yahweh or Jehovah, or as the NIV says, the Lord. Of course people were free to worship the Lord if they felt like it. But this was a, 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 an open-minded country now. This was a country that allowed you to worship in any way you liked. Most especially this was a country that uh, had re-embraced its ancient roots and was discovering all sorts of other tradi religious traditions. Isn't that strangely uh, contemporary? Most especially, they said, Hosea, people like Hosea must not speak out against that. But Hosea knows he must. Last week, Hosea began speaking to us, and he said then that we have forgotten what real love is. If you were here last week, you'll, you'll uh, remember that we said we've, we've oscillated between two distortions of real love. On the one hand, thinking that love was only about dull duty, a view that uh, was once embraced but has been radically dismissed now in our modern world. But then on the other hand, we have swung to another extreme of being convinced that love is just about emotion. 
we saw how uh, uh, Hosea was to teach the people what real love is all about, a lesson that we need to learn, and teach that in a very, very dramatic way. He was to marry a wayward woman, a woman who was bound to be unfaithful to him. And then when she was unfaithful to him, he was still to go to her, when she was absolutely destitute and impoverished, he was to buy her back, bring her back, and woo her and wait for her. Hosea had to learn what real love was because he had to teach what real love is. It's not a transitory emotion, but nor is it just a dull duty. Real love is passionate commitment that knows real pain sometimes, but is absolutely determined to stay alongside and to love. Well, Hosea has set the scene then, has shown in his own life that we don't really know what love is all about. But chapters 4 and 5, and we're going to focus on the on chapter 4, take that message a step further. Okay, maybe we don't really understand what real love is. Maybe there's something we need to learn. But is it so great a tragedy? Is it so disastrous for us? Hosea says, yes. In fact, to misunderstand what real love is, is utterly ruinous to us. We have seen that over the last generation uh, when uh, Richard Neville and his ilk preached free love and have reaped the whirlwind of uh, disaster in the lives of people after person after person. Isaiah actually writes a a list which could be a catalogue not only of our society in general, but actually of the street that this church stands, stands on. He says there is only cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery. If you don't think that that is a characteristic of East Oxford at least, and I suggest you should get out of it, that is what is going on in our society, even murder. Just a couple of years ago, two young people were murdered on this street. Now Hosea has something very, very important to say to us. And he says that not only is a characteristic of human society, it overflows into our very physical environment, as we've said. Not only is there cursing and lying and murder, but the land mourns. It's a very contemporary problem. We thought that it was only a trivial thing, that we had lost touch of what love is. Hosea chapter 4 tells us that it is not trivial at all. In fact, it is a deep and and, uh, terrible tragedy for our society. But then he goes on, 
or in fact uh, we need to step back to, 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 to look more uh, fundamentally at what the root cause of that loss is, of uh, the root cause that has caused this. That verse 1 sets it out for us very clearly. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. The Lord has a charge or a quarrel with you, you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. You see, he comes back to this word love, which has already been a theme of uh, Hosea, but here he develops it a little bit more by using a quite specific word, which is very, very important, both for Hosea and for the whole Bible. It's actually, uh, if there is um, only one Hebrew word that you ever learn, and I don't very often mention, uh, uh, mention ancient words, this is a word to learn. It is a word for love, which uh, in Hebrew is pronounced chesed. And it is a very, very special biblical word. It's actually notoriously difficult to translate. If you look at different uh, translations of this passage and others, you'll find that they use all sorts of different words. Older English translations uh, for that word use the word loving kindness, but it's been translated as uh, mercy or kindness or goodness or loyalty or covenant love. The RSV often used the phrase steadfast love. The NIV, uh, which we use, translates it in all sorts of different ways in different contexts. But the word is absolutely central to the Bible's idea of God's love. It combines the ideas of, of absolute faithfulness with personal, intimate, tenderness and kindness. It's the love that Hosea has already had to show to his, his ruined wife. And uh, Hosea says that is the only thing worth calling love. That is chesed, and there is none of it here. That's why there's, uh, there's all this cursing and lying and murder. There is no love. But then he elaborates it, he combines it with another word, which is again often found in the Old Testament alongside it, which is translated here, faithfulness, or you could translate it, truth. It has the sense of utter trustworthiness and reliability. Hosea is saying there is no, there's no, uh, there's no faithfulness in this in this world. There's no truth. There's no reliability. Rather, there's cursing and lying. There's no love. Rather, there is murder and theft and adultery. And he says, what's the reason for that? Well, ultimately, it's because of another, a third factor. In verse one. No acknowledgement of God in the land. See, Hosea's hearers would have been uh, a little bit horrified by that because they talked about God all the time. Actually, they talked about gods as well. They weren't uh, going to be restricted uh, to uh, one. They loved many gods. But, uh, uh, but Hosea says there is no insight. There is no real knowledge. Because they've gone astray, they don't really know who God is. And because of that, they don't know what truth and faithfulness are. They don't know what real love is. 
What a contemporary picture. You know, within 200 yards of us here, there are lots of centers of worship, actually. There's, there's Buddhists, there's Muslims, there's New Ages, there's Christians. But the average person is utterly confused about God, and in consequence, we know there is deep trouble in so many people's lives. But now is the hard-hitting bit that Hosea gives us. Because uh, it's not uncommon, really, for us to hear that uh, society has its problems. It's not uncommon for us to hear that uh, it's lack of love and truth and the knowledge of God that has caused problems in our society. Now, what I want us to note in particular this morning that Hosea points out to us very, very clearly is who is responsible for this. I say it's very clear, but uh, initially it's not immediately obvious. It's common in Christian circles for us to uh, always to uh, blame uh, general malaise in society or politicians or intellectual uh, uh, fashions and movements. But if, if you asked Hosea who was responsible for this, he would be absolutely amazed. He would say, haven't you read what I'm saying? Who is responsible? We are. We are. He says, I'm talking to the covenant people here. I'm talking to people who claim to know me. I'm talking to people who do that, and yet by their actions, by their attitudes, show that they have abandoned God. That's why he uses throughout his book this, this shocking language of adultery when he's talking about people's attitude to God. You can't be an adulterer unless you have first taken a vow of marriage, can you? This prophecy is about the failure of God's people, people who profess to know him which then overflows into all sorts of uh, problems in, wider, in the wider society. In fact, there's a, there's a striking little sentence in verse 6 of chapter 4, which gives us a clue, actually, of what may well be going on in our modern world, the world of today. Hosea says something uh, there which is quite important. He says in verse 6, "...because uh, you have rejected knowledge..." I also reject you as my priests. Our immediate reading of that is that he must be criticizing the priests of Israel who are going to be demoted from being priests. But if you read through it carefully, he's actually talking to all the nation, all the people, at every point up to that point. Now, you see, Hosea is hearkening back to, to uh, an ideal that had been set before the people of God uh, centuries before. In uh, Exodus chapter 19, God said, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you, the whole nation this is, then you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, the point was 
that the whole nation, all the people, were to be God's ambassadors to the world, to be God's priests. And actually the New Testament takes that up, that theme up, and says that the church is a kingdom of priests, meaning the same thing, that the church now is to be uh, God's messengers to the world, God's priests. But here Hosea says to the nation of Israel, and could he just be saying to the church too, you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you as priests. Frightening thought, isn't it? Could it be that actually the uh, rising problems that everyone acknowledges there are in society are primarily because of the failure of the witness of the church? Could it be actually that uh, uh, the fault does not lie with politicians, does not even lie with the people who make no pretense at worshipping God? It lies with people who say they worship God and yet in reality do not. Now, uh, there are countries uh, in this world where the, the, the gospel is so fresh to that country and the, the church is so small that uh, I, I have no doubt that God does not blame that church in that nation for the nation's problems. There are, there are countries in this world where the church has been physically exterminated, like Cambodia, and is only just starting to rise again from the ashes. And I have no doubt that God does not hold the Cambodian Christians responsible for the problems of Cambodia. But that's not the situation here, is it? Now we, we, we have hundreds of years of heritage where the gospel actually has been free to be preached. We have a tradition lasting for centuries of freedom of expression in that way. And yet through those centuries, especially through the last uh, hundred years or so, the influence of Christianity has been slowly leaching away. I cannot, cannot uh, believe that God does not hold us responsible for that. Next time you walk through the streets of East Oxford, next time you pass a drug addict, next time you see a homeless person or you see a police helicopter hovering overhead or, or you see a disturbed child from a broken home or you see real poverty, think to yourself, I'm partly responsible for that. My people are responsible for that. It is the failure of our witness that has brought that about. How have we done that? Well, so often down there through the years, the church 
has indulged in silly dalliances with things that have deflected us away from the truth of God's word. We have been persuaded that uh, uh, modern intellectual uh, advances mean that we can't trust the Bible. Whoever said that? Churches that really trust the Bible actually are profoundly transformed. We have been persuaded that uh, we need to indulge in all sorts of uh, 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 trivialities. Make sure that we're financially secure. Make sure that uh, we're happy in all sorts of other ways before we'll give a little bit of worship to God. No, God says, if your heart is focused anywhere else, then that is like adultery. And the church has been terribly weakened by those failures. From chapter, uh, uh, from verse 11 of chapter 4 onwards, he outlines for us, we'll, which we'll look at for uh, a while, two ways in which that failure of God's people has unfolded. The first way, he says in, in verses 11 to 14, is that as we've taken our eye off the ball, as we've actually moved away from worshipping God alone, our minds have become addled. That's what he says. The, uh, unfortunately, the sentence division of the NIV is probably not, not right. Um, it's probably better to read verse 11 of chapter 4 as one sentence. Prostitution, old wine and new, take away the understanding. It's quite possible that Hosea was purposefully misquoting a proverb. Perhaps the moralists of Hosea's day were uh, prone to say, old wine and new take away the understanding. Maybe they still saw that drunkenness was a problem and they had this, uh, this little bit of uh, moralizing. But Hosea extends that and says, says prostitution and old wine and new take away the understanding. And he goes on to explain what he means by prostitution. He doesn't actually mean uh, particularly the physical sexual act at all. Verse 12, My people consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. He's talking about this, this reckless pursuit of spiritual insight from any and every other source. He says, actually, the people that go down that path are soft in the head, frankly. What sort of an answer, he says, do you expect to get from a stick? And yet we do it. Now, we... Uh, uh, I've already talked about some of the ways in which we do. Good evangelicals, of course, are very, very alert to other religions. I have a feeling that perhaps our, uh, our greatest dalliance with idolatry is very often with money. Money. 
It's not an accident that the New Testament says that greed is idolatry. It's not uh, not an accident that Jesus says quite specifically that you cannot worship both God and money. It's not an accident that he says, says that you'll either love, or you'll always love one and hate the other. Language of love again. Because money absorbs our affections. It takes up our, our, our attention, doesn't it? It acts as an idol, which uh, is as vivid and real very often in the modern world as those little totem poles of wood were for the ancient people. We laugh at them and scorn them because they should think that a little uh, idol that they had carved could give them answers. And then evangelical Christians turn around and consult their bank balance before they decide to do something. And churches as a whole, which put financial prudence before the gospel, actually die. Because if money has that sort of priority in a church's life, that church actually has become idolatrous. Individual Christians who put their own financial well-being before the gospel fade away because they have become idolatrous. Their minds are addled. Oh, we couldn't do that. We couldn't possibly do that because the God mammon is not on our side. Oh, we can't possibly give a tenth of our income because we've got so many outgoings and God doesn't want us to be impoverished. We forget it is God who gave us all the resources in the first place. Turn our hearts and our minds away from God. And we dally with idolatry. Now, one of the great things that the charismatic movement has brought to the church in this country is a determination to listen first and only to the God who speaks, and then after that to seek the resources to do his will. Because they are acutely aware, so often, of the the idolatry of money. If you've got experience of uh, charismatic churches, you will know again and again and again, God proves himself faithful to people who seek his mind and then follow him. But if we don't understand that, and our minds become confused and addled, as addled as these ancient Israelites who thought that they would only get good crops if they bowed down to their little idols and didn't realize that it was God himself who gave them the good crops in the first place. That uh, whole section in 11 to 14 ends very tellingly as uh, he explores uh, their lack of understanding. Right at the end he says, a people without understanding will come to ruin. Do not be deceived. There are lots of different idols that the church can be tempted to, but I suspect... uh, that uh, uh, evangelicals who are so aware of the other ones overlook this one, one which is right at the heart of God's priorities when we're to keep our minds pure. 
Our minds become addled then by turning away. But our hearts become calloused too. We are stubborn. We will not respond to what God says. Verse 16, for instance, the Israelites are stubborn like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Now, if you have ever tried to put a head collar on a stubborn heifer, as I have, uh, you will actually know that it is a very, very helpful metaphor. It's almost impossible. They dance around, they roll over, they, they kick, they buck, they will do anything to get away. How can someone lead them then into a pasture where they can have good, good grass? I have been in situations where we have had to say exactly what no doubt the Israelites had to say with the odd stubborn heifer, leave him alone. The trouble is, this is God with his people. If they kick and buck, if they try to avoid the way I'm leading them, if they struggle and resist me, okay. You farmers know what you do with heifers like that. You leave them. By and large, in the end, they get caught by a lion in Hosea's day. And that's the end of them. Well, God does that to us if we will not listen to him. God actually says, if your heart is that rebellious, that resistant to me, that hard, then I'll have to leave you alone. Verse 19 concludes that a whirlwind will sweep them away. Their sacrifices will bring them shame. And that's his, that's his diagnosis then. His diagnosis, first of all then, is that this loss of love is actually very, very serious. It is tragic because when people lose touch with God's love, when they stop understanding the mind of God, then there are, there are widespread tragic consequences which even spread into the environment itself. But he says more than anything else, it is my people who are responsible for that. Do not blame anyone else. How then should we respond here in this church? Well, let me suggest, that first of all, I think we do need to be truly penitent. I am shocked by the the uh, historic lack of impact that the gospel has had on this whole wide area, this part of Oxford especially. It goes back uh, before any of us were born. Now this, this church building was placed here because this street was a notorious crime sector in 1879. And now there may have been periods in this church's history when a real difference was made. As Peter Vickers prayed there in his prayer, we are not making a real difference at the moment. And yet God's people are called to be priests. Do not let him reject us as priests. 
The way to do it, you see, is not to stir ourselves up to some frenzy of activity. The way to do it is seek to worship him alone in purity in our lives as individuals and as a corporate body. He will do the rest. There is a real sense in which if we do not take responsibility for our failures, we do not face up to those issues. If we remain with our minds confused, if we remain with our hearts calloused, then he will finally leave us. But on the positive side, there is... uh, in God and infinite resources of forgiveness. Actually resources that Hosea only barely saw. It was actually to God's rebellious people that God sent his son Jesus Christ. It was actually for their sins that he died. There is no limit to God's ability and willingness to forgive us our sins because he has prayed for our sins. And there is no limit to the new life that he really can give us, as we will see later on in this book of Hosea, if we sincerely ask him. We are actually seeing, at the moment in the church, real excitement of God changing people's lives so that we are being made new. But do not be presumptuous about it. It is very important that we see clearly and we respond humbly. And then, who knows what a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, can do for a world that so much needs it. Let's pray. Lord, keep our minds clear, we pray. Help us not to sink into the uh, confusion and lack of understanding that Hosea depicts there. And keep our wills responsive, we pray too. Help us not to be like that stubborn heifer. (coughs) Forgive us our sins, we pray, and renew our hearts and minds. And for any of us here who do not yet know you, we pray that you would not allow us to be deceived or to kick against you, but that we perhaps for the first time would surrender our wills and have our minds opened to the forgiveness and newness of life that Jesus Christ offers. We ask it in Christ's name.